Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and my guest this week is a poet, an entrepreneur, and an artist. Richard Wayne is the founder and director of the digital marketing agency View Online and of the Positive Nature Network, both of which are committed to creating networks of businesses that can support each other in the move towards a regenerative, flourishing future. He is also a poet with a commitment to celebrating openness and vulnerability, and he has now written a beautiful, generative, delightful book of poetry called Beyond the Brink is the Beginning. Richard and I met when he came on our six-month Thrutopia Masterclass back in May of 2022. And right from the start, I was struck by his capacity to grasp the big ideas. And then I began to read the poems that arose out of those classes and was really in awe of his capacity to take these big, complex ideas, find the emotional spark at their core, and then weave through that and with that, something that could open hearts and help others to understand what really matters at this time of transition. Richard and I have been planning this for a long time, but now we have a publication date for his book of the 27th of November. He'll be having a launch event at the Barrel House in Totnes in Devon. If you can get to that, then please do. But even if you can't, I will put links to where you can buy the book in the show notes, and I think you will want to. And so now is the time. Though in the end, as always happens, we roamed far and wide beyond the book. We went to the Positive Nature Network and how small businesses and their owners, who are often their founders and may well be their sole employees, can be part of the solution. And also where people can get stuck where our sense of identity can be the thing that holds us back from the change that we know we need to make. And I think this applies very far beyond the margins of just small business. So as ever, we approached our own edges. And with podcasting like poetry, I think this is what this medium is all about. We get to explore the unexpected. We get to talk about the things that really matter with people who really get it and who really care. And then we get it to share with you, the listeners who also get it and who also really care. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Richard Wayne, author of Beyond the Brink is the Beginning. Richard, Welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a real delight to be talking to you in a podcast setting instead of on our usual Zoom calls. How are you? How is Devon? How's your life? I am tremendously well. Uh, yep, I've had a, a, a lovely day today uh, going and, and seeing my youngest child uh, having his Leavers Assembly and various things sports day at, at primary school. So it's been a, an unusual day for me, not, 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 um, not my usual day, but a really emotional and lovely one. Yeah, and it sounds like your local school is not a total disaster, which is is lovely and and quite surprising. Yeah, not not a total disaster. Uh, I, I think you know they they do they do have the national curriculum, but there are there are positives. Brilliant. So, one of your many hats is that you're a poet, a beautiful regenerative Thrutopian poet, and so please would you read us one of the poems from your forthcoming collection? Of course. This is called, The Future is Already Here. The future you seek is already here. It's locked to the beat of your heart. When the world that we weave is unwoven, every thread that is left plays its part. In weaving a new web of meaning, in planting the seeds of belief, a vision that follows the dreaming, the root and the branch and the leaf. 
All patterns are interconnected, each fractal a sum of the whole. Our world in its chaos and glory, a body at one with its soul. Its true source of power is compassion, the calling so gentle and clear, a whisper of wisdom and wonder for the future that's already here. Beautiful. Thank you. Goodness. So let's take a little bit of a step back and look at your history as a poet, because we met on the 3W Masterclass, but you were already established with poetry as your creative form long before you came to that particular venue. How did Richard the Poet evolve? So Richard the Poet uh, has has been there for almost my my entire life in one way or another. The, the very first kind of um, move towards having some kind of professional life that I made was to be in a, in a band. Um, I spent a, a year with some very, very talented musicians, um, tremendous musicians uh, down here in, in Devon. And um, I, I wrote songs and, and, you know, my favorite aspect of writing songs was always writing lyrics. I, I just um, could lose myself in, in the process of, of writing lyrics and felt entirely at home there. Um, and I, I, I lost touch with that a little bit for a few years. I, I was I got to the end of my year out being in a band and I did the sensible thing and, and my friends did the uh, the brave thing and went on into careers in music and I've done incredibly well. Um, I know, yeah, really remarkable people. Um, you know, uh, one of my friends in my band was nominated for Mercury Music Prize and another was uh, played uh, for Christine the Queen's amazing, uh, amazing band. Uh, so they, they went on and did some incredible stuff. And I kept playing with words um, always. Uh, it's always been uh, my uh, where I find a certain amount of peace um, is to be still, to take it perhaps to take in something around me to observe something to listen to an idea and to and to go through some kind of process of synthesis and 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 then put that back out into the world in a form that i i understand and that hopefully resonates in some way um and i i started getting back into doing this more regularly and with more sort of intent um when i had my own children and uh, started reflecting on some of my experiences that I'd had as a child and um, some some of those events that happen in life that are perhaps uh, in a, in a very sm- with a very small t traumatic. So mm. I started writing about things that had happened to me, incidents where uh, I'd found myself um, at the end of a, a playground and had my, my my pants pulled down by a by a friend, and I remember with absolute searing kind of and everything about the emotions of that moment of all of my friends being able to see me completely uh, exposed like that. Um, that that was such a moment that I thought, well, I need to capture this stuff. I need to while I'm. Um, still aware of it, I need to go back and have a look at what are the events that have actually shaped me as opposed to the ones I talk about. Um, and some of the, some of the things that came up through that process were remarkable and, 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 uh, and actually I would not have remembered them without the process, without the, the idea of going back and trying to write a poem about these, uh, amusing or uncomfortable events that had occurred in my, in my life. Right. And we recently spoke to Abigail, who also was on Throotopia, and who said that every poem started with a kernel of feeling, and it's sounding like with you it's the same. I'm I'm not a poet, and so, you know, a book is a very different thing. It always starts with just an idea, though, and then everything else wraps around and wraps around. And I, I'm wondering then, when we're looking at a Throotopian future, and, and the point then is to to perhaps answer the question that you have in your book Ahead of the Future is already here. If I step forward, what kind of future will I find? Because we've moved then from just toe-curlingly bad traumatic events of childhood, which even just you reciting that leaves me with cold sweat and and just feeling, ah, I just want to crawl off and die. That's, That's the kind of thing that one has really bad dreams about periodically. 
And yet, we're facing climate apocalypse, potentially, AI apocalypse, potentially. I'd like to talk about AI with you later. All of these things are are so much bigger. How do you find the kernel of an idea to build a poem around when the subject matter is the existential future of humanity? I think that is a wonderful question. And my my response to that, I think, is it's all in it's all in the moment. It's all in it's all in the observation of of what's around you. And and I think, you know, many people who listen to your podcast will will very strongly relate to the sense that you get in connection with nature. And and I think you can find that sense in other moments too. Um, my, my most kind of productive time for finding ideas is when I'm sat, uh, usually either in my own, in my own garden, I have a small garden here. It's no bigger than, uh, I don't know, it's probably half the size of a a tennis court in total, something like that. Mm. So it's not huge, but it's big enough to have a little bit of life in it. Um, and, and in my garden right now, I have, uh, this, this plant that's grown this year that I've never seen in the garden before. It's common. It's uh, birdfoot trefoil. Um, so it's everywhere, but I've never seen it. Now, the other, the, the only thing I know about birdsfoot trefoil is that there is a particular species of blue butterfly that lays its eggs on birdsfoot trefoil. Now, I didn't know that before the plant grew in my garden. And uh, the other day, two days ago, I, w- I was sat on a bench at the bottom of my garden and along comes a female, uh, one of these, I think it's just a common blue, but it, one of these common blue butterflies and it comes and it lands on the, the uh, bird's foot trefoil and, it's, and, it, and it is obviously deciding to make its home in, in my world. And wow. the, the feeling that just observing something like that, something has come to my part of the world that I have responsibility for, and I have to, I, I'm now responsible for this little being, for this little, this little creature and, and, its, and its eggs and its caterpillars and everything that is going to come from that uh, and, and this plant that has come from nowhere. I now am responsible for that. So how can I reflect that? How can I, mm. how can I talk, um, how can I speak from that butterfly's experience or how can I speak from that plant's experience and how can I um, feel that? Uh, that that's, that's the sort of experience that I think, certainly in the case of um, the, the, the poems within this book, uh, that's where I've tried to go. Mm-hmm. Um, very specifically, I think, the there is quite a lot of inspiration for the book that's come from a number of people and their and their uh, writing as well but the 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 initial source of ideas it tends to be those kind of situations where you just notice the thing and it's and it's kind of beautiful and, and above and beyond yourself beautiful i uh, i await pictures of the caterpillars that arise on your bird's foot trefoil it's and this recreation of biodiversity seems to me it's really beginning to gain a toehold in people's awareness so that, you know, please stop using Roundup because otherwise the birds put trefoil won't be there and then the butterflies won't have anywhere to lay their eggs and this is why we're in the middle of biodiversity collapse. And as part of your poetry, I want to come back in a bit to to your use of language actually because I think it's really interesting and really lovely. But while we're here, you are a founder, I believe, of the Positive Nature Network? Yes, yeah. Can you say more about how that came to arise, where it's going and how much traction you're getting with that? Of course, yes. So Positive Nature Network, is uh, it, it, it's come out of a, a long-standing uh, kind of a process of, of getting my head around what business networking is really there for. So mm. I, for anyone who doesn't run a business, uh, a small business, and has never experienced business networks, uh, never been and stood in a room with uh, with with fifty to a hundred other suited people who are trying trying. God, that to, sounds to, like hell. <laughs> trying to sell you things, um, you, you, you know, they're not trying to sell you things. They're feeling uncomfortable and wishing that they were somewhere else, um, and and probably uh, having to put on a mask and having to interact in a way that is. Uh, very, but very far away from a, a sort of true, authentic 
presence in the room. Uh, I think everyone knows it, and nice. I, 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 this is one of the themes that that I that I think is interesting to me. Anyway, is I, there are so many things that I think everyone knows, and in business networking, I think everyone knows it's a it's a setup and it's an odd one. And what I have felt for years going to these things, I run a small business, I need to. Um, lean into that business as usual way of doing things on occasion. And I, and I still, to an extent do, um, you know, there, there's, there's one foot in that world. So I, I need to be able to talk to people. I need to be able to establish a relationship. I need to be able to talk towards the idea of us doing some work together at some point in the future. None of that has ever held any, um, any joy for me, uh, any, any sense of, uh, this is not. This is not me. This is. This is a process that we have to have in order for us to perpetuate this. This way of um, doing doing business and this way of seeing the world. Now, how can we take the fact that people in business need to interact, need to build relationships, need to um, move forward in what they're doing, face change? Um, look to work with good people, look to engage with societal changes, environmental changes, and, and impact and making things better, how can we take all of those aspects and get rid of all the stuff that's about, um, you know, how, how, many, how many dollars you, you referred this week? Um, right. And, and so, so Positive Nature Network, it, it, it was started by myself, my, uh, my business partner, uh, Dominic Cooper, and a, a wonderful um, couple of people who run a conventional business network that they've run for 30-odd years. Um, and they are also aware of the same you know, the same thing. They, they, they are um, absolutely rooted in running that business network, but they know that there is a new world coming and hmm. that, that needs to be engaged with. And uh, they, they have been very open to supporting the idea that perhaps we should have a network that talks about nature, that talks about how we can deliver something beyond, not just beyond profit. So there's a lot of talk and has been for years about people, planet, profit, and let's all make sure that we're you know, leaning to some extent away from, from profit-driven, from just, just doing the capitalist thing. And I get that, but it doesn't, feel like it quite exists. It feels like there are some businesses like mine, and I absolutely will say this is my business too. There are some businesses who really want to do this and mm. are really trying to do this and are uh, m making steps like joining this kind of network or like spending money on on uh, local conservation projects or like what, what you know going out and taking their staff to to do this bit of volunteering or that bit of volunteering whatever it might be but the number of businesses who are really able to say yeah we have a balance between mm. our activities towards those three things um you know, even if you believe in those three things quite as being what the balance should be, if we take that as an assumption, people, planet, profit, how many people in my business are there uh, to facilitate the people part of that? How many the planet part and how many the profit part? I think we can all guess that the balance is not even, even, even. It, right. it, it isn't because yeah. at the end of the day, if I can't pay everyone, I don't have a business anymore. So that interests me. And that's why Positive Nature Network, I think, is a, is a great place for people to, to come and, and actually talk about these issues and feel safe to talk about them because they're not directly looking for business there. Um, in terms of the traction that it's got, we've had a, a really good first year. We've had several hundred people signing up for our mailing list, and we've got a good sort of few dozen people who come to each session and it tends to be a, a few people who come along all the time and a few people who are new um, and then we've got some really good um, stories about people who've who've teamed up and started working together out of the back of uh, coming together on the network so it's it, it's a really it's a really good story and what it's taught me as much as anything else is that there are a lot of people out there trying to connect businesses and trying to talk about sustainability, um, but relatively few trying to connect businesses with um, nature and how 
business might fit within something like an, an ecological civilization or how business might adapt to um, this beyond the brink world. Um, what, what, what all of those networks are doing is, is finding ways to massage business as usual in the right direction, um, which, is, which is great. And, and I think we would have much more engagement as Positive Nature Network if we, if we maybe toe that line a little more. But I, I'm, I feel like there's a – I keep on mentioning this phrase this week, um, and I'm trying to think – I think it might have been uh, Richard Merrick, who I was talking to recently, who used the phrase gentle insurgency – um, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like there's a lot of room in many areas of business as usual for that gentle insurgency. It's not, it's not about upturning the apple cart today. It's about ensuring that everyone in the apple cart realizes that the apple cart's going to upturn whether I upturn it or not. So how would we best climb out the apple cart and climb into something else? That is a conversation that I don't think is comfortable in that arena, but it's one that I'm attempting to have on some level. Gosh, I should so much here. We, we will come back to the poetry because there's other stuff to talk about, but this, this is the crux of where we are as a species, isn't it? That, that people are not comfortable with, with that message. Uh, a friend sent me a blog recently called Capitalism is a Scam, written by someone called Caitlin Johnson. And she's describing, I'll, I'll read you the first paragraph. One of the most formative moments of my life was when I was running a small eco-blog called Earth Mums in the mid-noughts, which focused on consumer solutions to the problem of environmental destruction. Back then, I still believed that while capitalism was driving the destruction of our biosphere, it could still be hacked into being part of the solution in some ways. And then she gets a call from a, a biofuels startup and she ends up in the room with a bunch of marketing people who are laughing over the fact that there is a product that she's been promoting that does actually do what she's wanting it to do. And and the marketing guys are going, so what did you tell them? And he said, I told them to quadruple the price, of course. What else would I do? Ha, ha, ha. And they did. And it's priced, you know, exactly that went up by four because they saw that there was a market and they could they could do that. Exactly. They well, they could exploit that. They could exploit yes. that. And and this is this is where you know you talked about the language and the and the, and the poetry. And I think increasingly being involved in the business world, uh, you know, to the extent that I am, I run a small business. It's, it's not like I'm not Richard Branson by any means. But being involved in that kind of world from a perspective of language means that you come across those words exploit. Um, you know the 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 kind of penetrative language, the very very kind of um, I, I mean it is it, it is patriarchal hierarchical in every in every way, and it, and it it really the language is one of the components that keeps it that way, because as long as you're describing these processes, you know marketing is what I do. Well, mm. wouldn't it be better if storytelling was what I did? Um, right. they're, they're not different. Uh, it's just that we have another layer of abstraction for our dealings around um, extracting money from one another because it makes it more comfortable to extract money from one another if we don't say that what we're doing is telling each other stories in order to emotionally manipulate each other so that we do things that we don't want to do. Um, if we talk about it in terms of actually what it is, then somehow it becomes a very, very uncomfortable place to be. And I've seen that place from, uh, we, I, had an, I had an experience many years ago, my, my, my wife is a, an extraordinary woman and she uh, has done a, a lot of research over the years. And she used to do research in Nepal around uh, women's reproductive health. And uh, I would I would go along with her on on trips to uh, to Nepal, and I would pretend to be a research assistant because I had no skills uh, that could possibly be helpful. So I would sit in the background and uh, pretend to take useful notes. Um, and we met some some wonderful people out there, some some fantastic people in Kathmandu, um, in particular a couple of, of uh, researchers who came back over to the UK at a point later. Um, and we were up in Liverpool with them and we spent a few days with them. They stayed with us. We went to 
I believe it may have been Asda. It was a big supermarket. We went to a, a huge, big supermarket with Kieran and Laxmi from 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 um, from Kathmandu, and we went to buy some chicken. And uh, we walked into the aisle of uh, four and a half gazillion, you know, vacuum-packed bits of chicken in every possible conceivable um, size and shape and flavor that you could desire. And and I saw the the look on uh, Laxmi and Kieran's face, and I felt ashamed. Right. I felt I felt a level of shame that I have never encountered in my in my life. And um, it, it really made me think, what on earth is this? What is this that we can feed ourselves this way, uh, that, that we can actually stand it? Um, and that was unexpected. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but, it, but it, it does really speak to the idea that um, you can ignore almost anything as long as it's normal. Um, you know, right. as, long, as long as it's there in front of you and everyone's experiencing the same thing, you know, you, you can see how you end up with uh, with Nazi Germany. You can see how you end up with these kind of scenarios in which everyone just goes along, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a brilliant book called The Half-Life of Valerie Kay by Natasha Pulley, which is looking at Russia and, and, and our hero wakes, he's in a gulag at the start of the book. And, and exactly that, that, you know, 20 million people out of a population of 100 million were picked up and taken away and everybody else carries on as normal because because we have that herd instinct. There's, yeah, so many examples of of psychological experiments done. Let's, Let's not go down that route. But what I'm interested then is, given that and given your capacity to see the language and the normalization of things that once we begin to strip away the fluff and get down to the core of what we're actually doing, what we're doing is obscene. And if we spelled it out to each other, we might change. And so in your gentle insurgency with the Positive Nature Network, have people come to you with models of how they can begin to incorporate planet and people as much as profit? Because in the podcast, what we got to, I looked at the future guardian model with Paddy LaFluffy that River Simple is using and thinking if every single company in the country, business, whatever, regardless of size, were to take on the future guardian model tomorrow, the day after the world would be a different place. And I wonder whether gentle insurgency would see that as a step too far. I think that there are so we're, every single one of us is engaged in a sort of pivot. We're putting one foot over the edge of the cliff and the other one is just about still hanging on for some of us. Uh, for others, the other one is the one that we're putting our weight on. And so there are a range of conversations to be had and all those conversations are good. And one conversation is if we did this tomorrow, then things would change very quickly. And that's that's exactly the right conversation to have. As long as you're also having a conversation that goes, it's it would be it would be great now to start thinking about um, waving your foot over the cliff. Because if we don't have that conversation as well, then we create a, uh, a we create a division which I, I think is very difficult to bridge. Um, and I know that the pace of change needs to be fast, but actually we need as many people as possible to be starting to pivot in order for the pivot to be a, a, a something that doesn't lead to um, a division that could be very uncomfortable, I think. So people come to Positive Nature Network because presumably they feel as uncomfortable as you do in the rooms of, hey, business networking, let's all sit around and you know, drink cocktails and pick olives off tiny plates and, and talk to each other about our business and try and persuade each other that we want to take in each other's washing and share the money around. Is that not already an invitation to pivot? And if it isn't, how do you start the conversations that move people to a pivoting point? What does that sort of conversation sound like in a business context? What language do you use? 
What I what I normally do is to bring someone along who has already been through some form of transformative experience or is running some kind of organization that has already taken um, some leap in the direction of change. And I let that person talk about whatever they need to talk about for, uh, for, for 20 minutes, half an hour. And then we separate off into small groups and we have a period of reflection. And it's, it's only very gently led it's really just an opportunity for everyone to relax into the idea of what's just been said and how that might just somehow relate to their own experience. Um, and sometimes those reactions are, are, are quite profound, and, and other times there uh, there's a there's an ambivalence or an uncertainty about what's being talked about because it may not directly relate. So, you know, if we're having a conversation around uh, regenerative agriculture, how does that relate to me as a as a freelance videographer or, or whatever it might be? Th- those kind of conversations come up and there are a lot of people in Positive Nature Network who are very, they're very close to the question, so what do I do? Because my, because my situation is different to X, Y, Z. Um, and, and that's where I think your um, own idea around, well, it's about imagination. It's about storytelling. It's about getting the stories out there that are, that are allowing people to see beyond the idea of what they currently are and into the idea of what they could be. Now, that isn't what the Positive Nature Network can right now do because the Positive Nature Network is still about connecting businesses to one another. It's about trying to work with suppliers and, and clients who are doing things in, a, in a, a better way. It's about starting the pivot and helping those people who are already pivoted to get the, to get the story out there. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, it, where it's coming from. I'm, I'm not aiming it at people. We're not aiming it at uh, businesses who have necessarily already made any steps in this direction. We're trying to make it a space where you don't have to feel any kind of shame or discouragement for for the actions that you've currently taken. And that, I think, is a good step for that space. Okay. And essential because exactly, you don't bring people with you if you make them feel ashamed of who they are. They just leave and go off and do what they're doing. Absolutely. So, So have you yet had any people come through whose realization is that their business is not ever going to be sustainable that that what they're doing is not a sustainable thing i think that's an that's an interesting question and i've not spoken to anyone who's effectively quit and said i'm not going to do this anymore i can't i just can't um so i don't think we're at that sort of level of transformation i think that where we are is okay i've never asked myself that question before right um and and I, I think that that is the first most important step. When I first started considering whether marketing was something that was actually useful in the world or something that shouldn't exist, that's something that you uh, you then have to uh, to look at what you're doing in a very different way. And and I think maybe we're opening up the start of those sort of conversations in people's minds where it's like, okay, should I really be doing this? I don't know whether you've seen as a there was a, a, a very funny, or I found very funny, sketch show called um, The Mitchell and Webb Look uh, a few years back. And in The Mitchell and Webb Look, there was a fabulous sketch in which um, the the two main characters, they, they were actually uh, in the SS, uh, but they didn't really know what that meant. And they were talking to each other and, and looking up at each other's hats and noticing that they had this skull and crossbones on each other's hats. And the conversation sort of went, do you know, have you ever thought about why we have a skull and crossbones on, on our hats? Because that kind of kind of strikes me that, you know, it doesn't seem like a very positive symbol. And, and, and the other chap saying, uh, do you know, I, I think there's a possibility we we might be the bad guys and that it's it's that kind of it's that kind of conversation where it's just like the acceptance of oh yeah right okay right this is opening up so many doors for me let me float an idea past you because this is something that's come up for me recently mainly in conversation with daniel thorson so mm-hmm. 
You haven't had a chance to listen to that because we were recording before that came out. So I'll pricey. We were talking about AI and the question of whether generalised AI is or is not likely to be an existential threat. And we're not going to litigate that question again here. That's that's clearly an extremely divisive concept. However, the light bulb moment that I had was the fear of AGI is that we will create the computational system which can design and create design and cause to be built its own successor, at which point we become redundant, at least in the creation of computational systems, and its successor designs creates its successor, which designs and creates its successor. And we have a very, very rapid exponential shift, probably in a matter of hours. And that at that point, it it evolves to the point where it could decide to switch off humanity. And what we have created then is a system that is beyond human control and which has an imperative to grow and which is destroying all life on the planet to fulfill this imperative to grow. And the light bulb that I had was, we already have that system. It's called capitalism. It has to grow and it is destroying everything in in its mindless need to grow. And nobody feels there is no off switch. Everyone with the AGI goes, we just pull the plug and leaving aside that by the time we've got an exponentially brighter AI, pulling the plug is not going to happen. Sorry, mate, they're just going to rewire the, the wiring. But there is no plug to pull on capitalism. And so I was thinking a little bit further down the road of that, of so let's, you know, AI may or may not be an issue, but we have a system that is destroying us by its imperative to grow. And somehow that shifted my frame. So it's our problem is not that we power everything that we do with fossil fuels. That's clearly not good, but it's it's not the only problem. The problem is not even that we power everything that we do. The Michael Dowd statement, that's not good either, and it's also not sustainable. The problem, as I see it, is that we don't know what we're here for. And, and in default of that, we know we're not really just born to pay bills and die, but we have a system that tells us that Whoever dies having paid the most bills, the biggest and best bills, by the time they die, wins. And and everybody has bought into that. So, and then I take a step back from that. So, okay, we need to discover, we need to grow up a bit. We need to get beyond the, the child phase of see, want to take to the adolescent phase of writing poetry about the existence of reality and why am I here? But there's also, it seems you get to people and you go, we need total systemic change and we need to find a new reason for being. And that's when the lights go off. However much someone's come along the line, then there's no way we can't do that. That's too hard. And I think, but we already did it. We took the system of all you need to do is amass huge amounts of power and wealth and that will make you great and you'll be really happy. In, in face of daily evidence that this is not the case, it is the ultimate triumph of hope over experience, and yet it's spread around the planet and it is running us all. And if we can do that, then we can also spread something that actually feels generative. But I have yet to meet anybody in the business, industrial, even systems thinking field who is prepared to go that far upstream. Everyone's busy tinkering, as far as I'm concerned, with the colour of the wheels on the bus as we you know, drive it over the cliff. No, they need to be red or blue or yellow or green, whatever. But actually, guys, maybe maybe it needs not to be a bus. Um, and and then we just don't have the problem of the fact that it's going over the edge of the cliff. So I wonder, is there a level within any of the business fields that you interact with where that level of conversation could take place? First of all, does that land with you? Does it make sense? And second, is, is that a conversation? Because then the, I'm sorry, we're making a product that actually the world doesn't really need. That that ceases to be a problem because we're coming from a different place. Over to you. Yes. So there's a lot in there to unpack. I think that the reality is that anyone who has gone through what is a, essentially a, a kind of the process of, of starting a business and running a business is challenging in numerous ways. And 
anyone who decides to do that and does it with any degree of commitment is going to find it really difficult to hear that they probably shouldn't be doing it because it starts to be uh, it starts to be an identity issue mm. so for my experience i think it's slightly different because i i'm i'm fortunate to have grown up around uh totness i'm fortunate to have lived a life of a relative kind of privilege i, I live near nature I, I, all the time i have all of these things that give me some perspective on what my business is and what it's for but i don't think very many people in business are fortunate enough to have that perspective and and so the business is them the mm. the business is who and what they are it's what they live and breathe they get up in the morning and all they do is run the business and then at night they go to bed and they judge everything about their own existence. And this is no, this is generalized. This isn't everyone who's in business by any means, but there are plenty of people running small businesses where it is them. Okay. And so, as if you if you question the validity of the, the the product or service on offer, what you're doing is just it's a bit of a stake in the heart. And and I think that's where. It's really healthy to have business conversations that detach the human being from the organization because I think some people are really deep in, you know, especially business owners get really deep into it because it's it, it, it's absolutely how they project into the world as uh, the 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 CEO of this or the, the 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 leader of that, you know. How do you do that detaching? How does that play out in your world? enough people do it you 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 have uh people you know so you have a business like like patagonia who um you know who come out and say something that is radical enough so people take note of that as an idea okay. and you see you see a response to that and there are lots of different layers in that so one of the layers is uh an, a layer that's around the the sort of publicity and attention and, and all of the, the sort of negative things in a way around what that could lead to. Um, oh, look, if we take our business in this direction, potentially we can get ourselves seen and, and heard in a way that we've not, you know, that's the bit that you, you can't get away from. But at the same time, there's also plenty of people who see that, who see those things as genuine leadership and who, who go, I didn't realize we could do that. I didn't realize we could put nature on the board. I didn't realize we could um, structure a business in that different way. Right. A lot of it is momentum and a lot of it is identity. And I, and I think there, so you have many, many people who love being in business, enjoy what they're doing and really don't want it to have to end. And then you have many, 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 many uh, situations in which and you know you've discussed many of these on on the podcast before. I know with Simon and many other people, situations in which the the markets and the and the responses and the 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 chains of uh, of supply and resources and everything is so enmeshed that you can't stop it all at once because what's happening over here is is going to impact on this is this and this and this and this and this. So you've got a huge network of nodes all interacting with one another very much in the way that, 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 you know, a living system would. And you can't just pluck out a, a single species and expect the whole thing to collapse. At the same time, at some stage, you pluck out enough species so that the whole thing collapses. It's very similar in a way. It, it, it's, and sometimes I see these two potential civilizations in, in some kind of combat. And other times I see these two civilizations as being the same. They are reflections of the same thing. You, you have uh, a technological civilization that's, that's trying to evolve itself beyond this, uh, what, what might be seen by that civilization as some kind of prior state, some kind of historical place where we used to have to rely on the world and nature and resources that are there. We somehow used to have to do that. And now we're going to get to this point of technology, um, you know, you see in, in uh, science fiction, uh, you know, I know in, in Star Wars, there's a, a planet called Coruscant and Coruscant is, is, um, is entirely city. The, the, the entire planet, there's nothing else. There's just... Oh my gosh shiny metal you know and oh. uh, i think i think some people uh genuinely see that as a 
as a possible future. And then I think many people genuinely see the idea of everything technological and everything uh, that is sort of come out of that way of thinking, disappearing and as going back to a state of something that is almost entirely a, a living system. And the, the reality is that the future that is already here is somewhere in between those two things. And, and it's, a, it's very possibly closer to the living system side of things than many people are yet to acknowledge, but it's it's not a complete rejection of some of the aspects of, of what's come out of the of the civilization that we have now. And so it's, you know, there's a yeah, I'm going on. There's a yeah, new no, one. It's good. There. It's really good. I'm curious, have you done the thought experiment to take ourselves forward 30, 40 years, whatever time frame works for you? Have you an image of a future where the natural world and human technology are are working in some kind of symbiotic partnership? Because that seems to me the only one possible, but I really don't know what it looks like. I'd be really interested to know. Well, I, I think that there are many technologies, most of which are to one extent or another alarming um, to, to us, AI being one of those that have the potential to uh, to sort of create some kind of bridge between those two civilizations. And all of that is uh, terrifying in the sense that, that that in a way is, is, is a change that no one feels comfortable with. But I think, you know, sometimes you need to stop and look at the, at the uh, society that we already live in, the civilization we already live in, where we already have technology in our own bodies. Uh, many, many people have technology in their bodies to keep their heart running, technology in their bodies to keep their, their hips and knees working. Um, you know, there are many, many ways in which we are already embracing technology as a way to, to augment living things. And now I'm not saying for a moment that I think that that is the right path, but what I am saying is that we're already doing it. We've been doing it for ages. Um, and that we shouldn't be too sort of freaked out by the prospect because it's it's already there. AI, I think, is is similar in the sense that we have numerous technologies available to us that can destroy the human race. Numerous technologies, you know, we, we've had all kinds of you know nanobots and nuclear uh, nuclear technology and all kinds of things that have been there for decades and decades. And AI is the newest and potentially. Uh, the, the could be the swiftest to um, dispatch us without too much of our knowledge. But at the same time, it's not the biggest, I think it's not the biggest threat to us. The, the, the biggest threat to us is, is the thing that uh, sits behind this conversation, which is, which is that, I mean, you know, the, the world was, uh, as we record this, the world was the hottest it's ever been last Monday, and then it was the hottest it's ever been on Tuesday, and then it was the hottest it's ever been on, on Thursday, and Ro Rome is literally burning. Um, and, and we, you know, we, it's a, a different, yeah, it's a, it's a different world, I think, to, to uh, the one that, um, that we imagine sometimes. Mm, definitely. I really want to segue back to the poetry. However, I have one last question because, and this comes up for me a lot, is listening to people in business. They have 20, 30, 40 year plans or, or people in politics, you know, we will, we will be zero carbon by 2050, which conveniently is long after the lifetime, certainly the political lifetime of anybody currently in parliament. And I wonder whether in any of the conversations in Positive Nature Network, there's a sense of a time frame within which action has to happen. Yes. So I, I think absolutely there is. I, I think that there are, again, two sets of people who end up, I think, playing along quite nicely within Positive Nature Network. And, and those are people involved in organisations and businesses that have already got their heads around the fact that we are way past we, we, we really need to change things incredibly quickly, if not quite a long time ago, um, in order to make a real significant difference. And then other people who are just grappling with the idea that we might need to change things. Mm -hmm. And so we absolutely have those conversations, but what we, what we don't necessarily do is bring everyone with us when we have those conversations. 
you know because for some for some people uh it is not it's just not possible to live in that space yet it's just not possible to admit that actually oh this thing might this thing might really happen or this thing is already happening uh it takes a little while yeah it's too frightening and you know people are quite literally living in different states of of evolution you know people are living um I think it's easy to. There is some work that uh, one of our clients at the online my my marketing business. One of mm. the the clients that we have is a, a a woman called Marianne Allison in the in the US, and she's done an amazing piece of research around uh, effectively the evolution of society and the fact that there are, uh, in her view, several kind of um, eras of of humanity living side by side. And and that has very little to do with the technology or the level of development in a particular country. It has to do with the particular kind of social circumstances and upbringing uh, and, and effectively the, the circumstances that different families have found themselves in over a period of time. And you end up with a spread of several hundred years of, mm. of perception of where we are because of, because of this uh, natural kind of almost lag that occurs over time and when when you have that you're you're talking sometimes you're talking to to someone whose perception of of where this might take us is 70 80 years away from the reality in some in some respect away from our perception of the reality away from our away from our perception of the reality yeah. and if you if you take all of those perceptions of the reality and line them up some people ain't going to be ready for the conversation. Some people are going to be having a conversation that that I'm not ready for, and then there might be someone in the world somewhere who's having a conversation that that you're not ready for. But it's so. it's it's a real you know it's a real continuum, and and so you just can't. You, nobody knows what that distribution is. Is that like a normally distributed thing where uh, we just get to fifty percent and everything t- tips over? Is it is it doing this? Is it mm. what's it doing? Um, we we need to get enough people with one foot over the edge of the cliff and their weight tipping in that direction so that everyone tips but that could be that could be 20 you know people say 20% people people yeah, have different ways of viewing that yes um but so my feeling is you chip away uh and you also blow things up you know in uh, metaphorically you you make as big a noise as you can in the in the frame of reference that you're in and that helps people to pivot and if we we look at it as pivot more people if you can mm. and find ways of having the conversation that helps to pivot people and then it's enough enough and once we get to enough then everyone has to turn around there's no there's yeah. nothing there's no other way you know because even people who don't get it and don't want to get it if the whole of the culture moves then they have the choice of stepping outside the culture or moving with the culture and and if we get it right, what the culture moves to is is more generative and and yeah. more fun to be in, and then yeah. and then you come along for the ride because you're enjoying the ride, not because you're ideologically either with or against the ride. Absolutely, at some point it's just a better idea. And yeah. what I would say is in Positive Nature Network that everyone who comes along there recognizes some element of it's just a better idea. There's a big tie to. A, a kind of whether it's like a Protestant work ethic, whatever it is, there is a big tie to I must work hard in order to deserve to do something that is out of the realm of of uh, you know uh, of having to do a job I hate. Oh, interesting. I must do that. You know, right? Okay, so I I small business owner have got a business that I've made and I love and it thrives and I have to work every hour of the day because otherwise I'm going to end up stacking shelves on Amazon. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm proving something to my parents or I'm proving something to myself or I'm proving something, you know, I am working through my stuff. Yes. Um, and, and in order for me to have value in this world, I have to work through my stuff and, and other people can't define what my stuff is for me. So, yeah. Oh God. The apocalypse is going to happen because we're all still busy doing stuff we didn't do in therapy in our 20s. I think that's another thing, though. You know, I, I, I absolutely, I, I do, you know, same terror, same terror, and I relate to that. But the 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 thing that I think is important to recognize is the apocalypse is going to happen. We all know that. Now, it's going to happen at some stage, and we have influence over the when, but we don't have influence over 
the event because we all know that happens. That happens at the end of the, the at the end of your um, your geography lesson when somebody tells you that the sun's going to expand and the and the earth's going to burn to dust. You know, it's time. It's it's really just what lens of time do we want to look at this problem over? Because at the end of this, all living things disappear. Hmm. That will happen, and that's a that's a question of do we grieve for that now? Do we deal with that now? Um, do we look at it as a problem that, that is solely of our creation and, and that we are the only ones who could make that happen? Do we recognize that just as you and I uh, get to the end of this podcast, just as you and I get to the end of this day, just as you and I get to the end of our lives, the world gets to the end of its stuff and everything dies. And that happens. Hmm. Now, sorry, that's, that's not, 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 an, not an uplifting thought, no, no, but at but the that's, same time... Yeah, several billion years from now, so we can probably hold our breath a bit longer. Well, it's it's several billion years from now, from now if that's what happens. But we also know a number of other bizarre happenings that, that could come along and wipe us out at any given moment. Um, and I think sometimes it helps to live in that space because it, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, we could have some massive solar flare that wipes us out far before um, uh, the, the, the current uh, problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, I think it, it adds a certain kind of a sense of yeah we're not we're not going to be here forever so let's mm. let's try and let's try and use it you know interesting okay so we are running out of time i want to come back to beyond the brink is the beginning because it's it's a beautiful book in its language and it's also beautifully laid out i was really struck between the very first edition that i saw and the most recent one with the illustrations that you have made, partly because I listened to Daniel Thurston and I had internalized AI is evil, stay away from it at all costs. And yet you have created absolutely beautiful images and I gather you have achieved them with AI. Can you tell us a little bit about the process just of making the art for the book? Of course, yeah. It's uh, one of the aspects of doing this that I had to do a bit of soul searching around um, around AI. Now, AI is something that re uh, it really is very closely related to what I do in, in in marketing, and it gets used all the time for all kinds of different purposes, which I won't go into now. But in the case of the artwork for the book, I used a tool which is called Mid Journey. Now, Midjourney Mid is uh, it's freely uh, available, and it's a, it will uh, generate images from text. Now, that's not all that it does. It, it it also allows you to effectively augment or alter existing images by providing an image and a text prompt. So, for example, if I feed into it a photo of a, a snail shell, and then I ask it to um, to change the image in a particular way. So I might say, take uh, this shell and uh, rotate it by uh, 90 degrees and put it on a, a solid white background. And I want it to be in black and white. Uh, and I want to have the effect be uh, like a, um, an, an ink blot kind of picture then you can produce an image and, and that image will be maybe 20% like the image that you want it to be. And then you can take that image and you can once again have a, have a conversation with the AI about how you want to alter the image to, to, to bring it closer to what you're expecting uh, or what your, what your vision is for, for, the, for the image. So it's a process of taking something that exists and, uh, and, and then augmenting it through working with a computer. Now, the tool in this case, rather than doing that through a series of filters on a program like uh, Photoshop, I did it with a, a, a series of, of written explanations of what I'd like to, to happen to the image in, uh, in AI. And the difference in those processes is largely speed, um, the, the, the tools are not too different. They are different, of course, but they're not too different. So I, I felt, um, in the end that as I couldn't paint the pictures myself, I may have been able to produce them on Photoshop and it would have taken me longer than I had that using 
mid-journey as a an, an assistant to producing the images was the most effective way of coming up with something that sort of matched the vision I had for for the book. And in this particular case, we're never going to replace the designer because the aesthetic decisions were all yours. You decided the look that you wanted and when you got there and all of the images, I can see, I looked at the snail shell as you were talking. I could imagine more or less the process of that, but I, I'm not a designer. I wouldn't even have begun to think that you could do that with a snail shell. So in this case, and, and Jill Nephew saying there is no AI that's safe, this is, it wasn't, you weren't asking for opinions or asking for it to tell you what to do. You were just using uh, something that can parse your written language and turn it into images and then refining the image, which I'm, I'm daring to say is probably not, not too unsafe. And it's beautiful. I, the end result is gorgeous, I think. So so let's go with that. It's, I love the fox, the, the last one in the book. I, I love all of it, actually. They're just really strikingly beautiful. Thank you. And so we're heading towards the end. I wanted to have a tiny conversation about language, partly because it's it's my thing and I'm always fascinated, particularly with poetry, how every single word matters. And however much in a novel we try to weigh every single word, there are still in the end going to be some sentences that are sharper than others and some where each word might only be doing one thing. And yet in a poem, each word is is part of a multi-layered event. And, and there are very rarely words that are only linked to one concept, one idea, one feeling, one thing. I also notice with yours, and this possibly comes from your singer-songwriter history, you seem to have alternated between effectively blank verse and then others, you know, where we have iambic pentameter or something, a, a rhythm and rhyming couplets or some kind of rhyming structure. Was that a deliberate alteration or is that just the way that it comes out? To an extent, it's it's deliberate. I think what I, what I find when I write is that I'm reading. So I, I, I'm interested in the way that the words sound as much as I'm interested in the way that they come together on the page. And because of that, I think that there's a certain sort of emotional resonance and an ability to tell a story that comes out of moving between the two, not, not having everything conform to a particular rhyming structure it allows you to tell the story in a different way and to, to kind of change gear emotionally. Um, and I think that's really uh, useful. To, that's a really useful tool from, from my, from my perspective. And, and certainly the experience of reading the, reading the poems and reading the book, I think it benefits from changing things around like that. There is a particular, I, I love writing words that rhyme as I said early on, you know, writing songs, that's where I kind of come from. But I think that there's a, there's a power in both and, and it's, it, it's fun to sort of challenge myself to, to, to try and do things a little bit differently and, and to try not to be afraid of trying something that may not be, you know, stick to any particular rules. Hmm. Brilliant. Thank you. And I am in awe, again, of your capacity to find good rhymes and good rhythms, because it seems a very particular skill. Given that we're right at the end, I would really love it if you would read us another poem, and the one at the end of the book, In the Eyes of Another, seems to me to be a good one to end with. Would you be able to read us that? Of course. I would, I would love to. Thanks, Amanda. A life for ourselves. A life for the people we love. A life for all that breathes and sets roots in the soil. A life for this fragile earth. Look for this now, in the eyes of another. Smile. Let them see you. And know that you both stand at the brink. That there is no turning back. And that real change comes when you know this in your heart when you let go of this fractured world and find your place within this web of life, this perfect living earth. Well, there we go. Wasn't that beautiful? The whole book is beautiful. I am revising my antipathy to AI. 
simply because of the beauty of Richard's illustrations. They're gorgeous. And his poetry is so moving. And I realise I am wholly biased because I know where some of it at least came from. Also, full disclosure, I wrote the foreword. Forgot to say that in the intro. I did write the foreword. So I am somewhat intimately bound to this book. But I do think it's a really important addition to the Thrutopian canon, to what we're trying to do in terms of using all of our creative powers, all of the language at our disposal, to help people understand where we're at and where we could be and how we could get there. And for those of you listening, to give you more tools in your toolbox. You can buy this and give it to friends who are on the brink. As Richard says, they have one foot ready to pivot over the edge, ready to walk forward to something different. Poetry is so accessible. It's not as if you have to read 180,000 words to get it. One poem can be enough to take people to where they need to get to. So links in the show notes of where you can get this. And I will put in the show notes the date of publication because at the time of recording this, I don't actually know what that is. But it will be somewhere online, readily accessible to you, by the time you hear this. So that's it for this week. Go out, buy lots of copies, give them to your friends. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another conversation. Huge thanks to Cara C for the music at the head and foot, to Alan Lowell's of Airtight Studios for the sound production, to Faith for the YouTube, the website, the Instagram, and all of the conversations that keep us moving, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, And, as always, to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who loves language, who loves exploring ideas, who would appreciate Richard's book, then please buy them a copy and send them this link. And that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.